Be warned, the tales on this podcast are dark, sometimes scary, and full of adult themes. Today's episode contains dramatizations of graphic violence, animal cruelty, torture, violence against women, and some sexual content. Please exercise caution for listeners under 13. Prince Amon descended a staircase into the earth. Down, down, down he went, until he reached the bottom of the stone stairs. He drew his sword and stepped into the cave. But there was no monster, no dead end. Instead, he found a lavish bed, draped with curtains and surrounded with candles. Wait a minute! Another cave with a bed in it? Didn't we already hear this story? Scheherazade was yanked out of her imagination and back into the real world. She was slick with sweat, lying on the bed she shared with King Shariar. Much had changed since she began telling her stories. The tales had delayed her execution by eight months and counting. In that time, her once smooth belly had inflated, giving her husband hope that she'd provide a male heir. She looked at the man sitting before her, cross-legged like a child listening to a lesson. She thought she knew how to handle him, but he was a killer and a single misstep could end with her joining his other wives, decaying in the sand, pregnancy or no. So she adjusted. You are right, my husband. This is indeed another cave with a bed in it, but you see, this was different, because on this bed was a beautiful woman with a bowl of grapes on her lap, and she was naked. The look in Shariar's eyes shifted, suspicion replaced with lust. Scheherazade made a note. If she kept her stories raunchy and violent enough, perhaps she'd survive long enough to see her child born. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Tales, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Wednesday, we explore the dark origins of a classic fairy tale. Today, we're finishing the story of Scheherazade, the narrator of 1001 Nights, who piqued a murderous king's interest through intriguing, dark, and rambling stories, which seemed to have no end. Because if the stories end, her life ends. You can find all episodes of Tales and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up, Scheherazade placates her husband with stories of violence and adventure. Scheherazade had been preparing her entire life for this challenge. She'd always been a ravenous reader, absorbing ballads and scripture at a rate that alarmed her father. And now she was using her skill as a storyteller to survive. Her husband, King Shariar, was a deadly man who had robbed the kingdom of nearly all its virgin women. They had either fled the country or been married to the king and murdered the next morning. All of them, save for Scheherazade. On their first night together, she had piqued his interest with a story and strategically left off on a cliffhanger so he could not bring himself to execute her. The following morning, her father, the vizier Jafar, had been shocked to learn that the king had no plans to kill her that day. Tomorrow, the king said. The next day, when asked, he said the same. 
And so years of tomorrows passed by without Scheherazade's death, every night a new cliffhanger. Even if keeping track of the stories became more difficult as time went on, she cleared her throat. Now, where were we? King Shariar blurted out excitedly, we were going back to the story of the porter and the three ladies of Baghdad. Our hero, Haydar the porter, was held captive by three women who said that the man with the most entertaining tale would be spared. The second one-eyed dervish had just begun his story. He was the prince who found a beautiful woman in an underground palace. Scheherazade nodded. Of course, let's continue. Prince Amon had originally come to the cave only to hide, but instead found himself in a passionate affair with the woman who was held captive there. Her name was Miza, and she was the mortal mistress of a jinn who kept her secluded beneath the earth. This powerful spirit was not confined to a bottle or lamp. He roamed the earth, wreaking havoc, until he returned to the cave to satisfy his lust once every ten days, like clockwork. In the cavern, Miza had everything she wanted. Food, clothing, jewelry, everything except her freedom. So when Prince Amon arrived, she caught a glimpse of what she was missing inside the cave. News, conversations, and love. On the other hand, Miza made Prince Amon forget about the outside world. He no longer cared about his title or responsibilities. He was content never to be called a prince again, so long as he could spend his days with her. Life was almost perfect for both of them, but Miza made Amon promise one important thing. Every ten days, he'd leave before the jinn arrived. Except when the tenth day came, Amon refused to abandon her. His jealousy took over, and he decided he would fight the jinn and free her. She blanched in fear. He only has me for one day every ten. The other nine are yours. Can you not be satisfied with that? Prince Amon was not, and he told her so, but their argument was interrupted. All of a sudden, the underground palace rumbled, and a distant voice boomed. Miza urged Amon to hide as if his life depended on it. Amon pulled on his trousers and hid behind a tapestry, telling himself he would strike when the moment was right. However, it's easy to pick a fight with a djinn when he's leagues away. It's an entirely different matter when you see him with your very eyes. When the jinn arrived, Amon realized he didn't stand a chance. The jinn was twice his size, with muscles that bulged from his chest and arms. But the jinn's size wasn't his most terrifying attribute. It was his eyes, which looked like rubies of fire. And they had one singular focus lust for Miza. He was poised to dive into bed with her when he stopped abruptly. You have been with another man, he seethed. Miza tried to hide the rising panic. No, my love, she cooed. The djinn picked Prince Amon's sword from the ground and turned it over in his hands. How do you explain this? He growled. Miza looked around. I don't know where that came from. It must have caught upon your clothing when you rushed to my side. 
the demon snarled and pulled the woman towards him. He tore her clothes from her body and tied her to the bedposts. He took a length of rope from the wall and began to whip her. Watching this from his hiding place, Amon knew he couldn't fight the jinn unarmed and half-naked. He'd die for sure. After a moment, he swallowed back his guilt and shame and tiptoed along the edge of the chamber, back up the stairs toward the surface. As he exited the passageway to the outside world, his trousers snagged on the door and ripped free of his legs. So great was his terror that he did not stop to dress himself. He ran naked into the desert, not stopping until his legs gave out in exhaustion. Eventually, he fell face first to the ground and cried until the dirt became mud around him. Not long after, a shadow loomed over him, and a kind voice said, It is a strange thing to find a naked prince in the desert. Amon raised his head to see a merchant standing over him. Amon asked how he could tell he was a prince. All of a sudden, the merchant's eyes glowed fiery red. In a flash, Prince Amon was back in the cave, on his knees before the djinn. The bed was stained red, and in the middle was Miza, who lay there motionless, her back gashed and bleeding. For a terrible moment, Amon thought she was dead, but the djinn nudged her back to consciousness. Here is the man who sullied you. Identify him for me, and I shall be merciful. The woman struggled to her feet and limped over to Amon. A look passed between them. She took a tremulous breath and shook her head. I do not know this man, she said softly. The djinn growled. He held out Amon's sword, hilt first, towards Miza. If you do not know him, surely his life means nothing to you. Strike off his head to prove your loyalty to me. Miza's gaze did not waver from Amon. If he were the man you think him to be, I would have every reason to kill him since he left me to your punishment. But this man has not wronged me. He will live. Amon felt his heart swell at her selflessness. He was not worthy of her. Before he could thank her, the demon handed him the sword. You human, if you have never met this woman before, you'll find it easy to strike off her head. Amon gripped the hilt and turned the sword over in his hand. He was a warrior he'd killed before. One little act of violence could set him free. Amon raised the blade, hand trembling, and cast it to the floor. How could you ask me to kill a woman, a complete stranger, who just spared my life? The djinn paused, looking between the two of them. You're in league against me, so both of you will suffer my wrath. Miser reached out to the djinn, but he whirled on her, lashing out with the prince's sword. Her hand separated from her wrist, and she shrieked. A second blow removed her feet, and she fell to her knees in a pool of blood. Her eyes met Amon's one final time before the third strike cut off her head. Amon stared at Miza's body. 
In their brief time together, he had loved every inch of that woman. Now, she was just a pile of limbs upon the ground. He wanted to scream, to cry, tear his hair out, gather her bloody remains in his arms. But he could do none of those things without betraying himself. So he looked on in horror. The djinn noticed Amon's expression. Do not worry, I can find myself another mistress. What shall I do with you? Turn you into a donkey? Perhaps a scorpion? Amon begged the djinn to just kill him, but an evil grin spread across the demon's face. If you're going to chatter like a monkey, that's what you shall become. With a wave of his hand, the prince changed. Orange fur sprouted from his skin, and a tail curled from his backside. Prince Iman was now a simple primate, cursed to hoot and scratch himself for the rest of his life. Back in Baghdad, Prince Amon paused his story. He was half-blind, clad in a dervish's robes, his beard shaved. He looked up to his attentive audience, his three female captors. Beside him in chains were five other men, a porter, two merchants, and two fellow dervishes. He took a shuddering breath. He didn't like reliving this story. The scars were still fresh, but if it was compelling to the three ladies, he would be allowed to live. So he continued. What the jinn never knew is that I was an excellent student of calligraphy. Though my speech had been taken from me, a monkey can still hold a pen. In the form of a monkey, Amon found his way across the sea to India. On his journey, he lost his eye to pirates, but he continued on and eventually used his skill as a calligrapher to impress his way into the court of a faraway king. It was this king who he finally convinced of his human nature. The king ordered his court magicians to return the monkey to his human form. Afterwards, he lived in fear of the jinn finding him once again, but it was not fear that convinced him to give up his new title as the king's scribe. It was guilt. In his heart, he knew that his jealousy had ended a woman's life, and he would never forgive himself for it. If he had left her side when she bade him and been content with nine days of every ten, she would still be alive. So he shaved his hair and beard and disappeared into the wilderness until he reached Baghdad. When Amman finished his story, an awed silence washed over the room. The youngest of the three women, Ruhi, stepped forward. Two colandars, each with a more gripping story than the last. I salute you, Amon, for your honesty in relaying your tale. I wonder if your third companion has experienced something as incredible. The third colandar took a deep breath. He bowed low and said, I have never seen a jinn, my lady, but my tale will not disappoint. Like my fellows, I was a prince. Ajib, son of King Kazib, but unlike them, I was crowned king before misfortune befell me. All attention was on Ajib as he began his tale, except the attention of the porter, Hader, who found himself growing nervous. 
His gaze was not on the storyteller, but on the captors. Jamila, the eldest woman, had brutally beaten two dogs for seemingly no reason, and Farah had scars over almost her entire body, which she no longer took pains to hide. Clearly, these women were no stranger to violence, so Haydar feared that even if the stories entertained them, he might still end up dead. Coming up, a tale of disaster on the high seas. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Unlike other rulers, Ajib had no desire for wealth or power. His one true love was the sea. When his father died and left him the crown, Ajib spent most of his time sailing between his domains. He was at sea so much, his subjects started calling him the Fish King. The title was intended to be mocking, but he took it as a badge of honor. After all, life on a ship took immense courage. You never knew what danger you might encounter, like a strange mountainous island rising out of the sea, interrupting a peaceful day of sailing. It seemed entirely composed of black rock. When the captain of Ajib's flagship saw it, he went pale. The man collapsed at Ajib's feet. I have failed you, he cried. There is no saving the vessel. I have heard stories of this mountain. No one escapes it alive. The captain explained that the island was known as Magnetic Mountain. As its name suggested, its dark ore attracted metal objects. Even though ships were made mostly of wood, they were held together by one important thing, nails. When the little iron objects were unceremoniously removed, boats collapsed into the sea. Ajib demanded to know if there was any way to dispel this strange magic. The captain nodded reluctantly. There was only one way. Only by killing the horsemen at the very top of the mountain could you break the spell, but no one had ever succeeded. Ajib ordered his crew to row against the current as hard as they could. 
Perhaps they could skirt around the island, but the current was too strong. Within moments, they were in range of the mountain's magic. The ship let out a horrible groan, and a moment later, the first nail tore itself free. Nail after nail flew like arrows toward the mountain, one passing mere inches from Ajib's nose. The captain was not so lucky. A tiny iron projectile pierced through both of his cheeks on its path toward the mountain. The man fell to the deck, blood spilling from his mouth. Moments later, the boat buckled beneath their feet. The planks separated. Waves surged through the cracks as the men were tossed into the sea. As luck would have it, Ajib did not drown. Eventually, he drifted onto the shore of Magnetic Mountain. The sand was unlike any he had seen before. He sifted his hands through the coarse brown grains and realized it was a beach made of rust from the thousands of ancient nails that had been claimed from passing ships. When Ajib finally caught his breath, he looked up to the looming, dark peak that reached into the sky above him. He remembered the captain's words. The only way off the island was to kill the horsemen at the summit. Ajib swallowed hard and began climbing. Halfway up the mountain, Ajib found a cave. Inside was a man's skeleton. His bone hands were wrapped around an elegantly crafted brass bow. Next to him were three arrows with tips made of lead, metal resistant to the mountain's strange pull. Whoever this dead traveler had been, he'd been clever enough to know the right weapon to bring to this cursed place. Ajib quietly thanked Allah for his fortune and strung the bow. The sun was setting when Ajib finally reached the peak. He trembled in fear when he finally spied the mythical horseman. The man was clad in black armor with an enormous ebony scimitar, all the more terrifying silhouetted against the blood-red sky. Ajib muttered a quick prayer and took aim with a lead-tipped arrow. It caught the horseman in the thigh, causing his horse to rear up in shock. Ajib's second shot missed entirely. The horseman raised his scimitar and galloped toward Ajib, ready to sever the young man's head. Ajib's third arrow grazed the horse's flank with no effect. At that point, the rider was bearing down on him. As Ajib backpedaled, he loosed his final quarrel. This time, the lead point vanished into a gap just beneath the horseman's helm. The scimitar suddenly dropped from his hand, clattering to the ground, but the horse continued to charge. Ajib rolled out of the way as it galloped past, over the edge of the cliff. Ajib scrambled over to watch the horseman plummet. The stallion flailed the whole way down, but the rider was motionless until his body crumpled upon the rocks. With a sigh, Ajib cast the bow into the sea after them. At that moment, a great rumbling shook the mountain. Ajib lost his balance and slid toward the very precipice that had claimed the rider, but he did not fall. Just as he was about to tumble over the edge, a hand grabbed his collar and hauled him up. When Ajib was on solid ground, he realized, to his shock, that his rescuer was a man made entirely of brass. 
but he was no mortal man. He had no mouth or eyes, just a solid head like a statue, and affixed to his breast was a lead shield inscribed with runes that matched the brass bow. Ajib realized it must have been built by the man who died in the cave. Even though it had no mouth, a voice emanated from his solid head. You have achieved what my former master could not. I have a directive to take you back to land, so long as you obey one rule. Ajib nodded. Whatever you wish, I'll do it. Just get me off this island. The brass figure bent lower. You must never pray to Allah during our voyage, even if you are about to die. Ajib promised he would not, and soon they set off together in a rowboat. Except it wasn't a short journey. It seemed endless. The brass man rowed day after day while Ajib sat in the bow. The boat had no provisions, no food or water. So soon, Ajib grew weak. His mouth became dry and cracked. His cheeks hollowed, and he saw strange visions upon the horizon. The whole time he followed the brass man's rule not to pray. On the tenth day at sea, however, Ajib glimpsed land upon the horizon. With strength he did not know he had, he forced himself onto his knees, practically weeping in relief. In his relief and joy, he suddenly forgot the rule, and he cried out his thanks to Allah. At that moment, the boat suddenly stopped dead in the water. Ajib realized his mistake. But it was too late. The metal statue seized him and lifted him into the air. Ajib screamed, pleaded, and apologized, but it was no use. He was tossed into the sea. Ajib tried to grasp at the boat, but within moments it paddled away and disappeared over the horizon. Ajib was now alone in the water again. It took all of his remaining strength to swim to shore. After many hours, he finally made it, just in time. The moment he washed onto the sand, he lost consciousness. When Ajib opened his eyes, he was no longer on the sand, but on a balcony of a gorgeous palace overlooking the sea. A boy, maybe 15 years old, stood over him with a pitcher of water in his hands. The boy broke into a smile. Thank Allah you're awake. I thought you might die. You must eat and drink. Ajib struggled to sit up. Where am I? He asked. The boy bowed slightly. My home. My father sent me here a fortnight ago, and I've been so bored. I'm glad you survived. Ajib took in his surroundings in greater detail. The boy was dressed in a suit and turban of silk, and the palace was as lavish as Ajib's own back home. He reached to a nearby plate of dates and gingerly took a bite of the sweet fruit. The relief was immense. When Ajib's strength finally returned, he asked the young man why his father sent him away to live alone. The young man shrugged. It was about some silly thing the fortune teller said, that I was doomed to die at the hands of someone called the Fish King 50 days after he'd slain the master of Magnetic Mountain, whatever that means. Ajib froze. He wanted to flee at once, but he stopped himself. I am the master of my own fate, 
he thought to himself. He had killed the horseman ten days ago, so he had forty days to become the boy's friend and prove the prophecy wrong. So, for thirty-nine days, Ajib and the boy played games, feasted on rare fruits, and told stories. After Ajib's days at sea, it was a welcome relief. But on the fortieth day, Ajib woke to find the boy holding a dagger to his throat. Ajib tried to sit up. My friend, what's the matter? He stammered. The boy's face twisted in a mixture of terror and anger. Are you King Ajib, son of Kazib? Ajib skirted the question and instead begged the boy to drop the knife, but he wouldn't back down. The boy explained that Ajib had been talking in his sleep, and in the throes of a dream, he revealed his identity. While the boy spoke, Ajib made a grab for the dagger. The man and the boy struggled, dagger lashing back and forth between them. In his panic, Ajib could barely tell what was happening. All that existed was his friend, the dagger, and himself. The world was a blur around them. In the struggle, the dagger struck Ajib's left eye, and a red haze obscured his opponent. Acting on instinct, he fought the boy off, but when his vision cleared, he beheld the corpse of the boy he had promised to protect. Fate, it seemed, had made him a murderer. So, like the two princes he later met in Baghdad, he cut his hair, abandoned his identity, and became a colander to atone for his mistakes. And thence he found himself recounting his tale to three beautiful women, two hooded merchants, and one terrified porter. When Ajib was finished, Ruhi, Farah, and Jamila stood back. Each of the three women wore expressions of awe. The eldest of them spoke sternly, but more gently than before. Thank you for sharing your stories, Kalandars. You three, the merchants and the porter, may go. We have decided to spare your lives. Haydar, the porter, could not believe his luck. After a terrified night of preparing to die, he finally might be free. All of a sudden, however, a menacing laugh rose from the group. Haydar turned to see that one of the two merchants was grinning from ear to ear. This man had remained silent until now, only speaking through his taller companion. Now, though, he stepped forward. But, my ladies, we shall like to hear your stories. Jamila scoffed. Even after you faced certain death, you would presume to know us? Be gone, you foolish man. We're not here to grant your death wish. The merchant's face hardened. Then perhaps you'll grant my command. He threw aside his cloak to reveal a robe finer than any Haydar had beheld in his life. Jewels adorned the sash, and its folds were a deep purple. Haydar realized the merchant could only be one person, Caliph Harun al-Rashid, ruler of Baghdad, and the tall, thin man with him was his vizier, Jafar. Haydar had heard stories that the caliph and his vizier often wandered the streets of Baghdad in disguise. The ruler supposedly liked to learn about his subjects firsthand, though it seemed more like a rich man's sport to Haydar. Tonight was no different. 
the caliph demanded to know why Jamila whipped her two black dogs and why Farah's back was covered in scars. The caliph chuckled. You shall tell me your stories, or I will have no choice but to execute you on the spot. Coming up, all secrets are dispelled. Now back to the story. The three women suddenly found the tables turned. Even though they had spared their guests from death, one revealed himself to be the caliph of Baghdad. Now he demanded they tell their stories. The first to speak was Jamila. She swallowed a lump in her throat and began hesitantly, I will tell you the story of those dogs I keep in the antechamber. Long before she moved to Baghdad, Jamila was the youngest of three sisters. Her two older siblings were cruel to her, forcing her to do all the chores while they attended to their priorities, marrying and getting rich, which they soon accomplished. Her eldest sister fell for a wealthy scholar from a far-off land and disappeared. The second eldest was wooed by a local merchant whose fortunes exceeded her wildest dreams. She, too, departed. Less than a year later, the two sisters returned. The one who married the merchant discovered him to be cruel, violent, and prone to drink. The other abandoned the scholar when she learned he was more interested in the mind than the flesh, leaving her frustrated and lonely. Seizing the opportunity, Jamila had them swear to no longer pursue men above the needs of their family. Begrudgingly, the two women agreed. For a time, the three sisters lived in harmony, until they took a fateful voyage on the sea. The three sisters decided to visit a distant uncle who could only be reached by boat. While at sea, Jamila fell in love with a young man. Her sisters, however, did not approve. So one day, while Jamila and her lover were asleep in bed, the sisters hired a dozen sailors to carry the mattress up to the deck and toss it into the ocean. The mighty current drowned Jamila's lover, but she survived and swam to a nearby beach. There, she cursed her sisters and their cruelty. The moment she uttered the curse, something strange happened. Jamila saw a tiny snake slither from the sea, pursued by a massive python the color of ink. The jaws of the larger snake were poised to devour the little one, when all of a sudden, Jamila hurled a rock at the python, striking it in the head. The large serpent retreated into the underbrush, sparing the smaller one. Jamila watched as the diminutive snake sprouted wings, sailed out over the sea, and vanished into the clouds. Exhausted by the day's dramatic events, Jamila soon fell asleep on the beach. She awoke later to find a young woman with two large black dogs. Jamila scrambled to her feet in fear. The woman smiled gently at Jamila. Do not worry, they will not hurt you. I am a Jinnia. You saved me earlier from a Jinnie in the form of a serpent. To repay your kindness, I would like to present a gift to you. She gestured to the dogs. These are your sisters. 
Jamila's jaw opened in shock. She couldn't believe her luck. The Jinnia explained that this was her sister's punishment for their selfishness and cruelty. Jamila was given custody of the dogs under one condition. If she did not beat them 300 times per day, she too would be transformed into a dog. Back in Baghdad, in front of the caliph and others, Jamila wrapped up her story. So that is how I got where I am, forced to torture my sisters every night for fear the Jinnia will turn me into a mangy dog as well. By the time she had finished her story, the entire party had relocated to the caliph's dining hall. Wine was poured and meat was set before them, but all guests remained enraptured by the tale. Jafar, the caliph's vizier, spoke first. So how did your sister, sorry, half-sister, come by the scars upon her back? Farah answered for herself. Forgive me, my lord, but I have no tales of jinni or transformation. I was sold in marriage to a cruel husband. He toyed with me, showing me love in one moment, torture the next. Some nights I awoke to find a black serpent on the bed where he'd been hours before. Then to punish me for being surprised, he whipped me. Jafar stroked his beard thoughtfully. He was no stranger to baffling mysteries. Not too long ago, he had solved the conundrum of a murdered woman on behalf of the caliph. His keen mind was more than up to this task. Perhaps this black snake is more than just a cruel jest. He turned to the Kalandar who was formerly Prince Amon. Was the jinn that kept your beloved Miza as a mistress married? The Kalandar nodded. The vizier's eyes glittered with delight. Then I have solved it. The jinn in the cave, the giant serpent on the beach, and the horseman on the magnetic mountain are all the same individual. A gasp spread down the table. The vizier grinned. Does anyone here know any magic? To everyone's surprise, Ruhi stood from her place beside the porter. She blushed as she informed the group that she liked to memorize ancient incantations. The vizier gestured for her to come forward and then summoned the palace's best magicians, too. They burnt hair from each of the people the jinn had wronged, Amon, Jamila, and Farah, and let the acrid stench fill the hall. From the thick smoke, a pair of red eyes appeared. Below them were sharp, fang-like teeth, bared in a cruel grin. What fools dare summon me? The djinn asked in a voice that rumbled like an earthquake. When the smoke cleared, the djinn looked about at the vaulted dining hall, filled to the brim with warriors, magicians, and powerful people who had all borne witness to his acts of cruelty. In that moment, the demon felt fear for the first time. He knew his life was over. And with that, Scheherazade finished her stories. She looked to the king, whose eyes seemed hungry for more. She let out a deep sigh and collapsed on a cushion. Your majesty, I am very tired, so I do not have time to begin another story tonight. Will you grant me a boon for the thousand and one stories I've told you over the last three years? 
Shariar rose from his cushions and nodded. Anything you ask, I will grant you. Then, Scheherazade did something that she'd wanted to do for years, but had been afraid to. She asked if she could see their children. The king's eyes grew wide in surprise. Then his expression softened, and he nodded. Scheherazade's sister, Dunyazad, left the room and returned with the three young boys, one of whom was able to walk, another who crawled, and a third who had to be carried. Scheherazade brought the children to her chest and embraced them. She raised her eyes to the king and said, Shariar, on behalf of these three children I have borne you during our marriage, I implore you to spare my life. I became your queen knowing I would die, but for their sake I wish to live. King Shariar laid a hand upon his wife's head. My dear, I pardoned you before the first of our children was born. Your presence has done what I thought was impossible. You brought joy and imagination back into my home. The king swept from the room, leaving the two sisters and three children alone. Dunyazad embraced her sister. You did it, Scheherazade. You convinced him to spare you. Scheherazade let out a deep sigh and sank into a nearby couch. She smiled, watching her children roll about the floor. Yes, he did. (laughs) I just wish he'd said so 500 stories ago. I'm exhausted. Scheherazade no longer needed to tell stories to survive, but her days with the tales she'd woven were not over. Shariar was so overjoyed at the breadth of his wife's imagination and reading, he had the palace scholars transcribe her stories into a collected volume. And it is this text, a bloody, body anthology of tales, that would go on to define the face of storytelling for centuries to come. Or at least, that's how the story frames it. As thrilling as saving your own life through cliffhangers sounds, the actual writing of 1001 Nights is far less cut and dry. Fragments of this work have been found dating as far back as the 9th century, and it wasn't translated into English until the early 1700s. History has obscured who the real authors of the piece were, or who invented the character of Scheherazade in the first place, but we cannot argue with her importance in the narrative. As you've no doubt gathered, many of these stories are quite old-fashioned. Even the framing story is regressive by today's standards. Scheherazade never gets revenge for the countless women the king killed. Her victory is in stopping the violence, and the text implies that her action changes him, that he's a good king from then on. However dissatisfying this resolution may be to a modern audience, it does not show a weakness in the character of Scheherazade or make her story irrelevant. In fact, by framing all of these tales, so many of which feature violence against women, from the perspective of a woman, we're given a not-so-subtle hint. 
Her heart is in every character of the saga, but especially the episodes that tell of women trapped by society, by demons, by doomed romances. This illustrates a greater moral theme that ages far better than the content of each individual story. In the words of Lebanese author Hanan al-Sheikh, the theme of all the Arabian Nights is the oppressor and the oppressed. We see this tension play out through powerful jinns locked in bottles, kings and their servants, parents and children, but mostly through women's battle for survival in a world ruled by men. This is why the women of the stories are so wily, because cunning and trickery are the first recourse of the weak. They become cunning to overcome the men who oppress them. They fight to make their own choices and live according to their beliefs about freedom, sexuality, and love. So the next time you watch Disney's Aladdin or jokingly proclaim Open Sesame, spare a thought for Scheherazade. Her stories were violent, majestic, and shamelessly erotic because she wouldn't have them any other way. Thanks for listening to Tales. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Tales and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Join me next week for another dark and surprising fairy tale. Tales is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Tales was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Adam De Silva and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson.